0: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vott, the Senior Content Director. It's great to be with you guys. I'm here, of course, with Bishop
1: Robert Barron. Bishop, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you. I understand it's, uh, as we tape this, it was just Augustine's birthday, right? Number nine. That's right. That's right. Your birthday's coming up, and you're as old as my priesthood, because you were born the day before I was ordained to the priesthood. That's right. I remember we figured that fact out, and you said, "I remember
0: exactly where I was the moment yeah. you were born." You, you said you were trying to figure out how to get to the cathedral
1: where yeah. you were going to be ordained because you had never been <laughs> there before. I, I had been there, but I, I was—I was at Mary Star of the Sea Parish, Southwest Side, of Chicago. I was from the suburbs of Chicago, so we'd get into the city like occasionally. But I didn't know my way around that well, so I was nervously thinking, now, do I know how to get to the cathedral? This is, of course, long before GPS and all that. So that's I—that's what I was doing when you were born. <laughs> so 35 years of
0: my life, 35 years of, of your priesthood. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. Listen, Today, we are going to recap your dialogue with one of the world's most prominent atheists. Uh, we're going to go through some of the clips from that discussion, and I am I want to give you a little more time to respond to some of his points. But before we get there, a couple of updates in your life. Uh, we continue to produce these Bishop Barron Presents series, and you did a recent one with Jessica Hooten Wilson. Tell us about that. Who is she? What did you guys talk about?
1: She's great. Yeah, professor now, she's, I think, visiting at the University of Dallas and specializes in theology and literature, which I've always been very interested in. And her hyper-specialty is Flannery O'Connor, Dostoevsky, and uh, Walker Percy. So um, I knew her work a little bit, and then I read up on her in advance of the conversation, and we had a wonderful uh, hour-long talk about those three figures, and uh, she was uh, terrific.
0: And then another exciting thing, uh, I got to be there with you in person, is you traveled down to Houston. You gave yeah. the commencement address at the University of St. Thomas. Uh, what was that like? Have you Had you ever been there before to the no. University of St. Thomas?
1: No, I knew about it uh, from many different people and many different connections over the years. The bazillion Fathers uh, founded it, I think, 1947 or 48. And I've known lots of people who've gone there. And they approached me several years ago now, long before COVID and all that, to ask me to do this. So it's been on my calendar for a long time. I've been to Houston before, and in fact, you were there, weren't you, when I spoke at the uh, Coe Cathedral? But I, um, I had an opportunity now to do the baccalaureate mass and speak at the Coe Cathedral again, and then uh, this wonderful uh, commencement exercise that was done at Energy Stadium, which is this big stadium where the football team plays, and uh, had a great time there. Loved it.
0: Well, I mentioned at the outset, you recently had a dialogue with one of the world's most prominent atheists. His name is Alex O'Connor. He's relatively young, and I can say that now as a 35-year-old. He's a young man. He's probably in his young to mid-20s, I think. He's a a student at Oxford University and, intriguingly enough, is studying theology. So he's, again, one of the most prominent atheists. He's got a YouTube following, numbering in the hundreds of thousands of, of subscribers, and he's studying He's very smart. He's very uh, well-spoken, very thoughtful. Uh, But you sat down with him for a video discussion titled Christianity or Atheism. It was hosted by Justin Brierley from the United Kingdom. He has a series called The Big Conversation. And your video, which was released, I think maybe a month or two ago, already has over 200,000 views and and thousands and thousands of comments. I spent some time pouring through them. Uh, I want to go through some of the major Twists and turns of that discussion, but first, what was your overall take on that discussion? How did you feel it went? Yeah, really,
1: I really I felt very positively about it. I liked him. I, I had um, watched him a few times. I think you first um, brought him to my attention, and I watched a number of his videos. And I like the fact that he's respectful. So even though he claims Richard Dawkins, I think is one of his uh, models, he's not like Richard Dawkins. I mean, he's not that sort of disrespectful, um, you know, dismissive of religion. He's he's um, smart, articulate, and willing to listen to the religious point of view and engage it you know, in a critical way. So I appreciated the style, and I, I enjoyed the conversation. Um, you know, in many ways, like a lot of the new atheists, he rehearses arguments that are you know, very familiar from the philosophical tradition. So I'm not sure I, I, you know, any new ground was broken, but we were able to engage these questions again, I hope in a helpful way for people.
0: Before we get to some of these clips, I'd like to encourage listeners to to listen to that full discussion. I'll include a link to it here in the show notes. It might be a good exercise to first listen to the dialogue and then listen to this recap. But even if you haven't heard it, I think you'll find this interesting. So again, I have, let's see, eight clips lined up here. I think these are, again, some of the more pivotal moments, points of dispute throughout the dialogue. And, you know, it's tough in a live discussion to really sit down and consider what the point is, how you're going to respond. So I thought this would be fun. We can revisit some of the major sure. points from the dialogue. All right, here's the first one. This is where Alex talks about why he, as an atheist, is studying theology. So let me play it, and then we'll hear what you think about it.
2: And then I kind of had this period of sort of what Bishop Barron describes, of religion being whilst an atheist isn't someone who, who thinks that any of it is true, they can still recognize that if it were true, it would be the most important thing, right? Um, in fact, I remember talking about this in my interview for university, uh, being asked why, as an atheist, I'd want to study theology, and I remember saying that. I remember thinking, like, I don't, I don't believe any of this, but I want to be sure, you know, because if it is true, then it's the most important truth that there is.
1: What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, I think I said to him, you know, you're right, and... um, I would say that's a seed of the word. You know, Even that intuition that there's something of great importance here. What you get from some of the new atheists is the sense that, well, it's all just silly nonsense. It's all just you know pre-scientific uh, foo-foo. And when the poor human race was in its infancy, it dreamed up these crazy stories. But just that intuition that if it's true, it'd be the most important thing, um, I think it reflects some— Call it, call it profound intuition of the existence of God. Um, you know, Paul Tillich refers to religion as our ultimate concern. And in that sense, everyone's got a religion. Everyone's got something that concerns him or her ultimately. And I think he's intuiting that, that what religion is pointing to is that ultimate concern. My own sense, Brandon, is that, like most atheists, he would have very inadequate understandings of God. And he wants to brush those aside to get to what really is of ultimate concern. And I, I would pursue that path with him if I had a chance to talk to him further, that even the intuition of the importance of religion is telling him something of great importance.
0: I think what was refreshing to a lot of people is that you do have an atheist here taking religion seriously. Yeah. I think— when you think about the generation before him, the, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, it's tough to imagine any of those four guys entering Oxford to study theology as a legitimate subject. So the, the fact that Alex is taking it seriously enough, respecting it enough to, to read, write, study, think about it, I think
1: that's a refreshing and positive sign. Yeah, and you think of um, Karl Wojtyla, John Paul II, who was an ardent student of Marx because he wanted to know the enemy. Uh, and that's a good instinct. If you're, He was in a, a culture war in his time against Marxism. He wanted to know Marxism better than the Marxists. So, okay. And I think it actually gave John Paul II you know, a, se- a, a sense of, well, maybe there's something that's valuable here, and there's something that has attracted people to it, and maybe I can— Identify that and then show its relation to a deeper truth. So that'd be my hope, maybe, for Alex, even if it's under the rubric of I got to know my enemy, that he'll find something in that exploration that would attract him or at least engage his attention. The next major point in the dialogue is where Alex
0: talks about his own deconversion. And I know you were intrigued Mm -hmm. by this that you and Alex were both raised Catholic. You obviously took a very different path. You now are a Catholic bishop. He's now a a prominent atheist. So at this point in the conversation gave Alex a chance to explain why he left the faith. Um, so this one's a little bit longer. It's about a minute, but I think it's worth listening, and then we'll talk about it.
2: Well, I mean, it sucked for a while, uh, as much as it perhaps would of anybody of my age. I, I mean, I remember being sat on the back of a bus on a school trip, praying my rosary and essentially being bullied for doing so. You know, I was, I was fairly devout as a child, and uh, A lot of people have a deconversion story, like uh, my my own dad had a deconversion story from when he was much younger, when his own dad died. And when that happened, he just essentially immediately concluded that there is no God. Interestingly, some people do the exact opposite. When a loved one dies, they cling to religion because that's that's one way that they uh, kind of cope with the thing that they're facing. For me, there was no kind of singular event that happened that made me say I no longer believe this. It was more a realization of the baselessness of what it was that I did believe. Now, that's not necessarily to say that the Catholicism to which I ostensibly subscribed is baseless, but that my reasons for subscribing uh, to it were baseless. And I think that's a product uh, of bad teaching, or, or at least in the same way that Bishop Barron describes our religious education was similarly uh, kind of like doing PE or something. It was something, it was just one of these classes you did, nobody took it particularly seriously, and so it was very easy to brush it off. Yeah, It's like it's there, like he's the poster
0: boy for what you've been really against for years of this dumbed-down Catholicism, yes. that this is what it produces. Yes,
1: <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, not that it follows that trajectory in every case, but I think you're right. He's He's the archetype of it. What can happen if you've got a really bright, uh, articulate, smart kid, and you're not giving that kid anything substantive, then a series of bad experiences —like, for example, the fact that he remembers that —I don't want to psychoanalyze him you know, from a distance—but the fact that he still remembers vividly being bullied in, on the bus for praying the rosary. And I can see that unfolding perfectly in my mind's eye, You know, this, this poor, pious kid getting mocked by his friends. Uh, an experience like that, unless you have some ballast, you have some intellectual substance to, to ground your faith, uh, something like that could shake it. Or, as he says, you know, something more serious, the death of a loved one. So unless we give our young people something substantive, those things can easily tip you into unbelief. I'm also struck by the, the Newman-esque quality of that. You know. Uh, John Henry Newman, who said it's rarely by means of a you know, clinching argument that we come to assent. It's usually through a whole congeries of influences, um, like experiences, like the witness of others, like a hunch, like an intuition, etc. Coupled with argument can often lead the mind to assent. Well, see, in his case, the assent was that there is no God. And um, I would say in that case, the lack of formation, the lack of real argument, Uh, didn't help the cause, and so it led him down a path that that, uh, conduced toward atheism. I like the way you
0: say that there was a lack of argument or convincing reason, because Alex, that's the language he uses. Notice he said he doesn't think, he's not claiming that Catholicism itself is baseless, but that his belief in Catholicism was baseless. He wasn't given any good reasons to believe the things he was given. Um, So it's, it's to your critique here, you know that we need to give people strong, substantive arguments and reasons for the things they believe. Yep. All right, let's keep moving. So the first 20, 30 minutes of this discussion, you guys were each sharing your own uh, backstories. You talked about you first encountering Thomas Aquinas in high school, but then the engines start revving as the next 30 minutes, you have a, a pretty vigorous discussion about the definition of faith and its relationship to reason. <clears throat> so Alex claims here that faith actually closes off the pursuit of inquiry. I'm going to give him 30 seconds here so he can explain that, and then yeah. I want to get your thoughts on that.
2: Bigger and bigger, such that there are more and more things we don't know. Now, that's one of the things that I find so incredible and, and, and beautiful about uh, the scientific and philosophical endeavors that we, that we partake in, because there's just endless things to discover. I find it quite strange how the Christian might be able to say, that yes, our circle is getting bigger and bigger, and the frontiers of our knowledge are getting bigger and bigger, but once we get to that certain point, there it is. We've got it. We have the full circle. We know what it is. We're now satisfied.
1: Is that a problem, or is that how you would put it as a Christian? No, we have to make a distinction there, you know, and it's an important one. in a way we have the answer. I think we started by talking about the argument from contingency. You know, so you begin with a contingent state of affairs, you can't appeal endlessly to other contingent state of affairs to explain it. You've got to come finally to something non-contingent. I'm summing up that argument very succinctly. The point is in a way, yes, you've come to a conclusion. You you've you've said, yes, it's the case that this reality exists. But should we construe that as some um, closing down of the mind. Well, no, not at all. Not at all. For one thing —here I'm following Lonergan— you know, the scientific mind, as he rightly says, is always opening up new questions, new horizons, new perspective. The mind goes out, out, out. And then when you get to God, a lot of our people use not so much substantive language as the language of horizon. You know how a horizon is always retreating? So as you get to it, so to speak, you never grab it, you have it. It's always retreating because it's luring you ever more and more into its fullness. Well, that's what it's like to come to know God. In this life, to be sure, but even even in the next life, says Thomas Aquinas, that in the next life what I come truly to see for the first time is the incomprehensibility of God. So, it, it's the delicious sense of now eternal adventure into the mystery of God. So, in that sense, even though, in one way, yeah, we've closed down the argument, we said, yes, there must be this, this non conditioned, non contingent reality. But that's not shutting down the mind, that's inviting the mind into an eternal adventure of exploration. So, see, he's got like a lot of the atheists. A sense of, you know, God's a sort of tidy being in the world, and I've, I'm trying to explain things, and so I come to this little tidy being, and that's the end of it. No, what you come to is ipsum esse, right? The sheer act of to be itself, which is infinitely expansive, is never exhausted. The more I know, the more I want to know. That's what it's like to be in relation to God. And so I would strongly resist. Uh, the implication that somehow we're just sort of you know shut down in a nice little tidy system. We have answered the question in one way, sure. I don't want to leave that completely open-ended, like, oh, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. But to say God is to say infinite intellectual adventure.
0: From here, you guys continued to have a sort of tug and tug of war over the meaning of faith and its relationship to reason you kept trying to define faith as something that was super rational above Mm -hmm. or beyond reason he kept seeing it as an alternative to reason that the two are sort there's sort of a dichotomy and faith Mm -hmm. does some things reason does some things they're ultimately competitive with each other Uh, he summed it up kind of pithily in this 30 second clip so let me let me play this again this is his conception of faith's relationship to reason
2: The, the, the question is quite simple it's like when it comes to something, some proposition which you would say you need faith to believe, whether that be a religious claim or, or a claim that a person you've met is, is, is making, you either have sufficient reason to believe what they're saying, in which case you're relying on reason, or you don't, in which case, sure, you're relying on faith, but then faith would entail a lack of sufficient reason. I, I feel like those well, are the well, only two options available to you.
0: It, you. Is that a false dichotomy? What do you, yeah. what do you
1: make of that? You heard me trying to jump in there, I think, at the end. Because the analogy, which I think is very illuminating there, I often use, is coming to know a person. So you're coming to know another human being. Of course, reason is involved all the time. I mean, reason understands all sorts of things. But there is a moment when that person, if you're coming to real intimacy with that person, reveals something about herself that you could not, in principle, know. No matter how many Google searches, and how much analysis, and how, much, how clever you are, there's no way you'd get what's in that person's heart unless she chooses to reveal it, at which point you have to make a decision. Now, is that, do I believe it or not? Now, is it credible what she's saying? And you might say, yeah, it is, because it's congruent with everything else I know about her. At the same time, is it reducible to what I know about her? No, otherwise it wouldn't be a revelation. So that's why it's a false dichotomy to say reason or faith. No, it's reason has reached a kind of limit, but reason has opened a door. Reason has poised you for the self-manifestation of another. Well, that's not just with God. That happens all the time. It happens with you and Kathleen. I mean, when two people are, are married and deeply in love, I'm sure you could point to those moments when She revealed something to you that you would never, ever have known otherwise. You revealed something about yourself to her. And then the two of you, because you're in love with each other, I imagine, said, "'Yeah, I I believe that.'" Now, can I reduce that to an argument? No, you never can. You never can. In a way, it remains always mysterious to you. But yet, your will, in that case, has commanded your intellect. And that's exactly what Thomas Aquinas says about faith. It's a rare instance when the will commands the intellect. Normally, it moves the other way, right? The intellect kind of leads the will. The intellect understands the good, and then it leads the will. But in the case of faith, the will leads the intellect. It says, no, this is worthy of belief. This person who is speaking to me is worthy of belief, and what the person is telling me is congruent with reason, but yet beyond it. And so I — choose to believe. That's the relationship between faith and reason, it seems to me. So it's not repugnant to reason in any way. It's not below reason. It's not repugnant to reason. But it does indeed stand beyond it. And that's the case in regard to, um, let's say, the highest mysteries within a religious tradition. That spousal analogy has always rung
0: true to me as a spouse. You know, As you say, husband and wife, they get this. And I think the preeminent example is when your spouse says, I love you. That's not yeah. something that I, c- yeah. when Kathleen says that to me, I could not have detected that through reason alone had she not right. revealed that to me because I don't have access to her interior life and to uh, into her interior feelings. And so I have to trust that. It's not against reason. It's not unreasonable for me to believe her when she says that. It's congruent with you know the way she treats me and speaks to me and right. lives with me and all that. But it's something I could not have grasped through reason alone.
1: And see, but if she were the kind of person who was consistently cruel and consistently unjust and consistently uh, um, inconsiderate, and then she said, Oh, I love you, you might say, Well, all evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding. You know, you'd say, That's not congruent with what my reasons told me. But in her case, it is deeply congruent with what your reasons told you. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Another one, too, I, I didn't do this with Alex, but Jacob and the angel, you know, that image. We're talking about God here. To talk about God is not to speak of an object that I can manipulate. And there's where Augustine's, you know, si comprehendus non est Deus, if, if you understand that isn't God, even, even Aquinas, whatever can be known or understood is less than God, right? So what's faith but this wrestling with God, the God who stands beyond whatever I can control? Who's called me into relationship, but often does things that I find confounding, acts in ways that I don't fully understand. But, but by God, he wants to wrestle with me. He wants me to be in the in the fight with him. Faith is like that. It's like a wrestling with God. Um, I'm resistant to an overly tidy rationalism, you know, that simply sufficient reason, and I got this, okay, and I give assent to what I have absolutely clinching arguments for. Yeah, but that's going to move you into a very tiny little space. And it's very much shy of the space of spiritual adventure into which faith calls you. So in the next part of your dialogue,
0: Alex seems still confused about what you mean by faith. And so he just asks you, can you give just a single sentence Mm -hmm. definition of what you mean by faith? And I'm going to play the answer you gave and then give you a chance to unpack it a little bit.
2: If, if uh, Rather than kind of uh, talking around the subject, as I think we've been doing here, I think it would be helpful to the listener and to me if we could have a, a, a sentence, perhaps, that sums up what, what faith is as a as a dictionary theological definition.
0: I think I, I cut off the end there accidentally, but you said this, faith is a response to the revealing God. Faith is a response to the revealing God.
1: What do you mean by that? Yeah, just what I've been saying all along. So I can know truths about God on the basis of my own reasonable reflections. But at a certain point —and we recognize it precisely in, well, in creation, but also in the history of Israel, and especially in Jesus Christ— that God has revealed truths about himself that I can't guess through reason, at which point I've got to make a decision. Do I trust or not? And faith is the response in trust of the whole person to the revealing God, the God who is properly described as disclosing something about himself. Um, you know, another thing, Brandon, I don't think I pursued this with him, with Alex, but I just had the conversation with Jordan Peterson. And Peterson talks a lot about the hero's journey, right? Which is always a journey from what we know into what we don't know. And so the hero is the one who's willing to enter into the realm of the unknown, and thereby bring it into greater, you know, uh, uh, light. So it's a it's a trust. Every one of our heroes, if they had said what Alex just said, "I only do what I can absolutely know and understand," that's the whole range of my life and experience. We'd never have heroes. In a way, see, faith is correlated to the attitude of the hero, that I'm. I'm willing to go into this kind of alluring darkness that I can control, and I'm going to seize ground within that space. Now read the prophets and the patriarchs and the great figures Is they've moved into the alluring darkness of God, out of which you know, the, the voice of God comes. Think of the, the Book of Job. You know, out of the whirlwind God speaks. Well, the whirlwind is, is what, by definition, I can't control. It it blinds my eyes, and and it it limits my capacities. But can I listen to the voice that comes out of the whirlwind? That's faith, the the response to the revealing God.
0: So that took us to about the hour mark of the interview. It's about an hour and a half long, Mm -hmm. and you guys spent the last half hour dealing with the weighty subject of evil and suffering. Mm -hmm. And this was obviously a, a really pressing issue for Alex, as it is for many atheists. As you said at the beginning, he didn't necessarily trot out any new arguments. I think one of the things he did do effectively, rhetorically, was tie it to the current COVID crisis, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about that here. Uh, I'm going to play a clip here where he, he brings up suffering in relation to the coronavirus and, and challenges you as a Christian to, to, to say that if you believe that God permits suffering to bring about a greater good, then you have to, you have to say that, that COVID is, is a good thing because it's bringing about good results. Let me, let me play it for you so you can hear exactly how he puts it.
2: In order to assert that there is an all-loving God who is supervising this, and because you know, I'm not the one here who is claiming that this is being supervised, that somebody is watching this, somebody knows that this is occurring, and somebody's allowing it to occur. If we're going to assert that there is a benevolent being who is allowing this to occur, then it must follow that there is morally sufficient reason for this to occur. In the United Kingdom, just today, we passed 100,000 people who've been been killed by the virus. And the Christian has to say that this is morally justified. And they're welcome to do so with reference to theodicies, by saying that, you know, this is pain... People like to speak kind of abstractly about how pain and suffering might be necessary to obtain certain goods, or it will be compensated in the afterlife, or something of this sort. But we have to say specifically on an issue like this that, yes, this specifically, 100,000 people who have died of COVID have done so because God allowed it. That's the first thing that needs to be admitted by the Christian, and most Christians have no problem uh, accepting that. The difficulty comes in, in the second proposition, which is that it's justified. This needs to happen, or this should have happened, or at least there's no kind of uh, moral qualm with this having been allowed to happen. Yeah,
1: but what's the problem? problem? I mean, he's just saying the same thing in different language. Is there a morally sufficient reason for it? Yeah, I would say, as a Christian. What is it? I don't know. I don't know. And I I won't be bullied into into coming up with the answer, as though that somehow adjudicates this issue. Is there a reason why God has permitted suffering in the world? Yes. I think I have to hold to that. What is it? I don't know. How would I possibly know? It's like asking a a three-year-old to comment on a page of of complex trigonometry. And the three-year-old says, I don't understand any of that. Okay, well, does that surprise you? But do we therefore conclude, well, there is no reason, there is no uh, um, uh, coherence to that page of trigonometry? Well, no, but you can't possibly expect the three-year-old to know it. Well, we're, we're like that, but a fortiori. Even more radically, we're like that in the presence of God's work which covers all of space and time, affects, in principle, every single person on planet Earth, affects things beyond what we can see and understand. And so to say, there is a morally sufficient reason, yeah. Okay, what is it? I don't know. How do you expect me to know? I can't possibly know. And that's, of course, the burden of the Book of Job. It, where were you, Job, when I did this and that, when I made the heavens and the Earth? I mean, how are you to be pronouncing on what makes sense and what doesn't? So I think we can and should say in the abstract, yeah, there is a morally sufficient reason. Otherwise, God wouldn't be truly good. He'd be a wicked God, let's say, willing evil directly. But what that is —and see, atheists will all the time try to sort of bully a Christian into saying, unless you can tell me what that is. Well, I mean, why would you expect that we'd know? Sometimes we get little glimpses in this life. We see, oh yeah. You know, because I didn't get that job, I got this other job that made that where I met my wife, and you know, so I can see that evil was permitted so that some greater good would happen, or you know, someone goes through surgery, heart surgery, and they get thirty-five more years of life, and unless I'd gone through that terrible suffering, I never would have. Okay, we can see it sometimes, but that we can't see it all the time in every detail. I, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable, you know. So I I won't be bullied by the atheists. They try it all the time to sort of back us into a corner. Unless you can name that, um, then there's no justification. It
0: seems to me that if an atheist is trying to use this seemingly inexplicable pain and suffering as an argument against God's existence or against his goodness, then the burden falls on the atheist to show why there cannot be or there definitively is not a morally justifiable reason. The burden is not on you as the Christian right. to give that reason. They have to show that God can't possibly have any reason. But to your point, I don't even know how in principle an atheist could do that. They, they just can't because they
1: don't have access to all of time and space the way God right. does. Right. They'd have to have a God-like knowledge of all of space and time to make that pronouncement, which they can't possibly do. Which is why, you know, again, it comes up all the time in discussions with non-believers. But to me, the Argument from evil, though it has enormous emotional appeal, I get that, it's a very bad argument. It's just logically a bad argument. And so, in a way, I get impatient with it. Um, I understand it. Look, I'm a human being. I, I face the same dilemmas whenever suffering occurs. I get it emotionally. But from a logical standpoint, it's not a very good argument. All right. i got a couple more short clips here.
0: This one is continuing that discussion of evil, suffering, and COVID. Alex kind of pivots, and instead of pressing you to give a reason why God allowed COVID, he picks up on your acknowledgement that, in the end, God must have had good reasons for allowing this because he can bring about greater goods. And in that case, Alex suggests, Christians should celebrate something like COVID. We should be thrilled with it because in 10, 20, 50, 100 years, the the net effect of COVID on the world will be good. Here's how he puts it.
2: I mean, you can imagine as you say, celebration, we shouldn't really be thinking about someone throwing a party. Yeah. But imagine, you know, that in, in 10 years time, we all get together to to celebrate the, the coronavirus. You know, and don't worry, we're not throwing a party, we're not making cakes and, and, and wearing party hats, but we all get together in a room and we, and, we, and we say, thanks be to God for blessing us with the coronavirus. It would seem absurd. It would seem absolutely insane if that's what we were doing. But that's that's the view that's implied by this theodicy which is to say that maybe not the kind of celebration that involves a party hat but the kind of celebration that involves us being able to get together and say thank you god for allowing this to happen i don't know who on their who in their right mind could possibly thank god for the well, coronavirus I, I think
1: on, <laughs> what would you say to that bishop i think i did eventually say to him um we celebrate the mass and we use that language we celebrate the mass and what's the mass but the representation of the the bloody sacrifice of Christ in an unbloody, sacramental manner. right? But it's a celebration, indeed, of this horrific event, namely the the putting to death of the Son of God. Do we celebrate it with party hats? Well, no, of course not. But we speak of the Mass as a celebration because we recognize that from that great evil came the greatest possible good, namely the salvation of the human race. And so I, I don't find that all that puzzling, that we could acknowledge that God is is about God's business, sometimes allowing suffering to bring about goods. In the case of of the cross of Jesus, we we do see it. We see the salvation of the race came from it. Um, so I, I, it doesn't strike me as as a problem. I think it's a it's a false dilemma. It's an invented quarrel. Uh, we're not We're not naively, you know, jumping up and down. But we're acknowledging, call it a, a faith-filled acknowledgement of what God is about. I, I have no quarrel with that. In addition to the Mass, it reminds me of the traditional
0: celebration of Felix Culpa, oh, happy yeah, right. fault. You know, We yeah. celebrate in a sense that Adam and Eve fell, but still hanging on to the gravity and the weight of that tremendous evil. But we recognize out of that evil came the good of our Savior. So it's a happy yeah. fault. It's something we celebrate, albeit solemnly.
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I thought, okay. in, in a way, he was grasping at straws there with, with the celebration stuff. I, I thought it was, a, it was more of a rhetorical sort of appeal. It didn't have much logical substance to it. Let's wrap up with this final clip.
0: Again, the, the title of the dialogue was Christianity or Atheism. So I think it, the implication is which makes better sense of the world. And mm-hmm. Justin Brierley, the host, gave Alex a final chance at the end of the dialogue to give a sort of a last statement on why atheism better makes sense of who we are, the existence of suffering, the way the world is. So here's Alex's closing statement, if you will. It's about a minute long, but I'm going to play the whole thing here.
2: If you think that there are philosophical reasons that are kind of really compellingly leading you to believe that there's some form of God, and from that you have to make sense of the world, then I think, sure, it can make sense to be a Christian, right? But if you accept the premise that I put forward, which is that if you start with the suffering, it doesn't seem to lead to God. Then the question becomes, what is more obviously present? And to me, when I, when I wake up, when I reflect on the state of the world, when I reflect on the, the nature of contingency and the nature of causation, but I also reflect on the nature of death and suffering and misery, the thing that's more obviously real and more undeniably real, and therefore I think a better philosophical starting point, you know, more, more justified starting ground, is the existence of the suffering. If I cannot get from that existence of suffering, which is undeniable, nobody can deny that that exists, if I can't find a route from that suffering to the existence of a loving God, then I can't use Christianity to make sense of the world that I find myself in. You're welcome to go in the other direction if you like, but if if you share in my view that suffering is so obviously present that it should be the starting point of philosophy, then I don't think that you can make sense of it with Christianity alone
0: do you share that basic premise that suffering should be the starting
1: point of philosophy? No. As I remember, we ended there. We ran out of time. And I was just uh, jumping into that conversation at the end because I so emphatically disagree with that. Um, you know, I come out of the tradition that says evil is best defined as a privatio boni, or a privation of the good. It's a, like a cavity in a tooth, like cancer in an organ, like a blindness in eyes. Evil is the lack of something that ought to be there. It's a corruption of the good. But see, the implication of that is that good is always ontologically more fundamental and basic than evil. Uh, Paul puts it in spiritual moral terms, where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Sin is a is a deformation right, of, of the will. But that means that the will, in its basic goodness, is always more fundamental than the deformation of it. And so starting with suffering or evil is never the right instinct because that's a a secondary derivative fact. What's always more fundamental is the good. And so I agree with those that say the only problem more puzzling than the problem of evil is the problem of good. The only thing more puzzling than why is there suffering is why, why why is there good in the first place? Why should there be sentient beings who suffer? Why should there be a world at all? I mean, that's a much more interesting an actually puzzling problem. So I I would say that's getting precisely off on the wrong foot, to say we begin with suffering. Begin rather with what is more ontologically basic, which is the good. And see, what I often say too, Brandon, is I know on other grounds that God exists, namely the argument from contingency. I think we can show very persuasively that a non-contingent reality exists. Okay. There's also suffering in the world. We have to find a way to reconcile those two truths. And I think the path we were exploring, that the all-good God allows certain forms of evil to bring about a greater good, is altogether coherent. There's nothing that's illogical about that. So that, to me, is the challenge of how to think together two obvious things —that God exists, that there's evil. Well, there's a way to do that. And so I think the logical objections fall away uh, once we see those two things. But starting with suffering, I don't deny it's a basic fact. I, I think there, Christianity and Buddhism come together. You know that the, the that we suffer is one of the most elemental truths for a, a Buddhist, and then trying to find a way out of that suffering. Okay, I, yeah, yeah. We call that the the effects of sin, or we'd call it um, uh, the longing for salvation, or whatever. But don't start with that as though evil is metaphysically basic. <laughs>
0: Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. If you have a question you'd like to ask Bishop Barron, visit the website askbishopbarron.com. That's where you can record the question and send it in to us. Today we have one from Jacob in Oregon. He's asking for some advice for someone, I assume it's himself, maybe a friend, who was raised Christian, then became atheist for quite a while, like Alex O'Connor, but then now is starting to re-engage Christianity. So here's his question. Hmm. Hi, Bishop Barron, this is Jacob in Oregon. I'm wondering what advice you would give to someone like me who may have been raised Christian, um, but became an atheist at some point, in my case upon entering adulthood. Um, I was an atheist for some years, but I spent the last 10 uh, re-engaging with Christianity and trying to come to terms with it. Um, as an example, I've entered RCIA three times and I'm still mm-hmm. not Catholic. So what advice would you give to someone like me in terms of sorting this out? Thanks.
1: Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, find a good spiritual friend or spiritual director, or someone you can talk to about the faith. So it might be a friend who, who's a believer. It might be a, a priest or, or an elder or someone that is in the faith that you can talk to and raise questions to. Secondly, I would I would all these wonderful tools of apologetics and evangelization that are available now. Uh, go get Mere Christianity. Go get The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Go get Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Go get Um, Peter Crafe's books, Uh, read my book uh, on Catholicism or Arguing Religion. There's all kinds of books out there now that are addressing the issues raised by atheism, offering reasons for faith, et cetera. Thirdly, I would say, and this is most important, is find some disciplined way to pray. Now, you might be at a point where, I don't even know if I believe this and I'm not ready. Okay, take a little bit of time every day and even say, Lord, please grant me faith. Lord, I'm I'm seeking your face. Read something of the scripture every day. Uh, If you're near a Catholic church, I'd say go in and find um, uh, where they find a little red lamp, and that's where the Blessed Sacrament is. And just go and sit in front of it. Maybe you don't know what to say. Maybe you don't know what to do at that time, but just go and spend a little time. So, I'd say spiritual friend, I'd say spiritual reading, and I'd say prayer are three great things you can do.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for the great question, Jacob, and thanks to all of you for watching and listening to this episode. I'd encourage you to go and watch the full dialogue between Bishop Barron mm-hmm. and Alex O'Connor. I'll include a link in the show notes. Again, it's about an hour and a half, but a lot of people remarked that how refreshing it was to see a serious, friendly, charitable, high level discussion about things that separate atheists and Christians. So I encourage you to check it out. In, a, in about a month or so, we'll do a similar episode like this, debriefing Bishop Barron's dialogue with Jordan Peterson. So if you like this, um, there'll be another one coming up soon. Again, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.